welcome back, listeners, to the land of collapsing governments, a.k.a. Europe. If you're a government that has managed not to be on the brink of collapse this week, congratulations. You've done well. More on which later. Uh, but Dominic Kramer, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm totally fine, thanks. I kind of enjoyed the snow. Snow! Did you have lots in Amsterdam? A little bit. I was in the forest, Amsterdam forest, when it started and... Yeah, it was very, very cold and I lost the feeling in my fingers and my face. But it was beautiful. Did you have fun in Paris? Yeah, it was very pretty here as well. The same thing happened. Walked around for maybe an hour thinking, oh, it's so pretty and taking pictures. And then I was like, yeah, my toes are falling off now. That's the downside of all this. Anything else exciting happened to you this week? Yeah, something huge, actually. My neighbourhood in Paris finally has a decent bakery. Oh, wow. How come you lived in a neighbourhood in Paris without a bakery? I thought every neighbourhood had a decent bakery. Yeah, a lot of people believe it isn't possible. But um, we have bakeries, but for some reason, due to some weird like phenomenon of particle physics, the few blocks around my apartment were this kind of bakery black hole and all of the pain au chocolat around here were like burnt or raw or didn't have much chocolate in them, which is terrible. That is terrible. I mean, it's the main reason why I would live in Paris. Exactly. It's the whole reason I came here in the first place. Anyway, uh, we have a new bakery across the street and it sells really good pan au chocolat, very reasonable prices. So it feels like the five years that I've spent living in this neighbourhood, waiting for that to happen, have finally paid off. It's a big week. Congratulations. Thanks. So what are we actually talking about this week? This week we are going to be heading to Calabria, which is that beautiful region in the southern point of Italy. Actually, it represents the toe bit in the boot shaped southern end of Italy. You know the bit I mean. I know the bit you mean. And it's also the home of one of the world's biggest organised crime syndicates, the Ndrangheta, who are in a bit of trouble at the moment because last week Italian prosecutors opened the biggest maxi trial in decades, putting 325 alleged members and associates on trial in a specifically built trial centre, which has been fortified um, because, yeah, obviously doing a trial in the middle of a place where this mafia organisation are um, dominant is quite a risky thing for the prosecutors to do. We will be speaking later on in the show to the amazing criminologist Federico Varese. But first... Who's had a bad week, Dominic? Well, I've got a bumper edition of Bad Week this week because, as Katie alluded to earlier on in the show, three sitting European governments have found themselves in pretty perilous positions this past week. And I'm going to try and talk about all three, but in order to leave time in the episode for some other things, I'm not going to dwell too much on each one. Will you help me and keep me in check, Katie? I'll put the clock on now. Go. Well, there was... Oh, uh, no, I feel panicked now. I'm not <laughs> going to go too fast because then people won't understand me. But first, there was the government of Estonia, which collapsed last Wednesday because police and prosecutors opened an investigation into the Prime Minister's party, the left-leaning centre party. They are accused of alleged corruption related to property development in Tallinn. That PM, or the previous PM, Yuri Ratas, handed in his letter of resignation to the president, but he said that his resignation was not an admission of guilt, but a decision he'd made because he knew that the investigation would cast a shadow over his government and he thought it was best thing to step down whilst it was ongoing. He was in government with some quite controversial people, wasn't he? Yes, his coalition was broadly centre-right, but 
also controversially contained this far-right anti-EU party, the EKRE. So what's going to happen now then? So Kaya Kalas, the leader of the centre-right reform party, has been given the task of trying to form a new government. Her party actually topped the polls in 2019 when they had their last election, but hadn't ended up forming a government then because they weren't so willing to jump so quickly into bed with this far-right party. If she manages to form a new government, then she will be the first female Estonian prime minister. And also, someone on Twitter pointed out that it would mean that six out of eight Nordic and Baltic governments would be led by women. Not bad. Um, Okay, good. That's Estonia. Next. Okay, next we're off to Italy, where also on Wednesday last week, Matteo Renzi pulled his party Italia Viva from the ruling coalition government led by Giuseppe Conte. This move has caused a chaotic and pretty unpredictable political crisis for Italy at a pretty inopportune moment whilst the country is struggling with the health crisis and the serious economic effects of that health crisis. So why is Renzi quitting? Well, Renzi was very critical of the government's plan for doling out these loans and grants from the EU's coronavirus recovery fund. He thought that the money was going to be squandered on handouts instead of being invested wisely. But he had suggested changes to the plan, which were accepted by the cabinet on Tuesday night last week. He then quit anyway on Wednesday. So it's not a very popular opinion with the public. It's not gone down very well. And anyway, his party are a tiny party within the coalition. Yeah, it feels like no one has particularly nice things to say about him in the midst of all this. Like, it seems to be interpreted mostly as this kind of cynical power play at a really terrible time. Yeah, absolutely. And it's him making it all about him. And he was, you might remember that he was actually prime minister for a few years back in 2014. But yeah, maybe he thinks this move is going to help him gain a bit more influence. And it doesn't seem like it will. But at the time of recording, it's not yet clear what's going to happen. Conte would have a pretty difficult time forming a new government, but he does still have support from his own party and from the Five Star Movement. And therefore, he's currently trying desperately to cling on to the votes of confidence that are taking place in the different chambers of parliament. On Monday night, he survived the vote in the lower chamber. And by the time you hear this, we will know whether he survived the vote as well in the Senate. He will definitely be doing everything he can to avoid a fresh election due to the fear of right-wing parties taking power, who are doing quite well in the polls at the moment. And whichever party is in power over the next year, they will be the party that gets to appoint the next Italian president. Next, the Netherlands. Okay, finally... Mark Rutte, Prime Minister of the Netherlands, also had a bad week after he and his cabinet decided to step down following the publication of a report outlining a culture of overzealous fraud hunting at the Dutch tax office that led to thousands of families being wrongly accused of having committed benefits fraud. It's awful. It's been a huge story here in the Netherlands. And many of the people who were affected have had their lives ruined by this practice, ending up in tens of thousands of euros worth of debt. And actually, there are also cases in which this practice led to divorces and even suicide. It's horrible. The report criticised government ministers, civil servants and even judges for their role in allowing this terrible practice to take place. Many are referring to it as institutional racism because it was also specifically targeting dual national families. Well, that's horrible. So is Rutter and his cabinet, are they stepping down specifically to take responsibility for 
that scandal. Yes, um, but it's important to know that there is an election coming here in March anyway. So the cabinet and Rutte himself stay on as a kind of caretaker government. And whilst they're not meant to make any big policy decisions during this time, they obviously have to continue making pretty key decisions around the C-word crisis, and they will do that. So it is kind of more of a symbolic move than anything else. And some people are saying that Rutter should have stepped down as his party leader because he is, even though he's not directly responsible for this practice, he did create a culture of governance in which there had been an extremely lax sharing of information between ministries and parliament. And they actually call it the Rutter Doctrine. And it also took an enormous effort from a few incredibly brave victims aided by a few very persistent MPs for all this to come out. It's taken years. One leading member of Ritter's party did actually resign from politics completely. Wow. Eric Vibers, who had been Secretary of State for Finance during the time that the tax authorities had this devastating policy. But Ritter is not going to step down. And... Yeah, he's known as Teflon Mark in this country because everything just falls off him. And it seems like he's going to get away unscathed again. And his party, the VVD, uh, are way ahead in the polls and will almost certainly win this coming election. And he will be prime minister again. Wow. Water off a duck's back. Absolutely. Phew, I'm finished. Yeah, but you also forgot about Slovenia, Dominic. They're looking a bit collapsy right now. Maybe we can talk about that next week. Yeah, I think three countries is enough. Who's had a good week? It's been a good week for Europeans who want to eat bugs. Don't know if that's a demographic that includes you, Dominic, but it's very exciting. Basically, uh, there's been years of waiting to get legal approval for companies to be able to sell insects as food in Europe. And finally this week, the European Food Safety Authority said, yep, we have finished our risk assessment. We're pretty sure that it's safe to eat one specific type of insect, dried yellow mealworm. Uh, So what that means is that fairly soon, the EU should, in theory, go ahead and say, "Okay, European countries, you can sell these dried yellow mealworm in your supermarkets. But for ages, I've seen insect food available to buy in like the summer festivals in the Netherlands. Yeah. There's always like an insect food place. Has that been illegal? Yeah, good question. So it turns out our food laws are quite a lot vaguer than they probably should be. And what's happened is that some countries in Europe have interpreted some EU regulation dating back to the 90s more liberally than others. Uh, So in some countries like Denmark, Finland and indeed the Netherlands, you can buy food made out of bugs in the supermarket and there's like snacks at festivals and that kind of thing. Uh, Here in France, these kind of products seem to be sort of tolerated, even if they're not officially quite legal. And in other countries, you just can't get them uh, because technically bugs are a new or novel food. And that requires a bunch of regulatory hoops to be jumped through. And that's a shame because, as you probably know, there is a lot of excitement about bugs as food. Uh, There are companies popping up around Europe and other parts of the world that are trying to brand insects as the new superfoods. They are rich in protein, which is very good for bodybuilders like you and me, Dominic. And... uh, Probably the most important thing is that it's a much more sustainable source of protein than something like beef or pork. For cows specifically, I mean, we only eat about half of each cow that we kill for food. It's incredibly wasteful. And of course, insects would produce way fewer greenhouse gases than farming livestock. If you think about all of those farting cows, uh, it's just a, a methane disaster. Do insects fart? That is a great question, and I do not know the answer to that. Clever listeners. 
as with last week and my uh, polluty cars. Please write in with your answers. So yeah, bugs seem in general like a pretty great food source by comparison with meat. The big question is, of course, like how do you convince people that they're not gross or scary? How do you feel about eating them? I'm not like jumping at the opportunity, but I will definitely give it a try. Yeah, I think I feel fine about trying them too. I mean, something like two billion people around the world eat bugs every day. Really? Yeah, they're really common in parts of Asia and Africa and Latin America. And like, obviously, bugs are not seen there as something that's weird or exotic in any way. I think part of the tendency over here to be like, well, that's weird. I think that comes from the fact that we just haven't had that many edible insects on this continent for like the last few millennia. Europe is actually only home to about 2% of the world's edible insects, would you believe it? So it's not really that weird that we haven't had a tradition of eating them. I imagine they don't have very interesting taste, but might have quite a nice texture. Mm, yeah, I mean, there's this Mexican grasshopper snack where they cover them in like chili and lime juice and it's quite crunchy and quite delicious, I think. So maybe that's a good way to eat them. Uh, I think companies developing these bug-based foods are quite mindful that it might take a while to convince Europeans that they're delicious. So lots of companies are making a powder out of the insects that you can use as a flower or like make into a protein shake. But I think, yeah, people could be convinced to eat them whole. You could like dip them in chocolate, maybe. I mean, anything dipped in chocolate is nice. It's a winner. I'm in. <laughs> I knew you'd be in. Um, the other thing that's kind of interesting is that, you know, there's, there's proof from history that attitudes towards foods can change quite quickly. If you look at lobsters... Like in the 19th century, lobsters were seen as gross. We used to feed them to prisoners. And now it's like the fanciest food there is. So who knows? Same thing could happen to bugs. I still find lobsters a bit gross. They're just giant bugs really, aren't they? Yeah. I don't know. I'm quite excited about the bug food era. Uh, if I had some spare money to invest, which I don't, I would think quite seriously about investing in bug food. A lot of people think that this industry is going to be really, really big in a few years time. In the meantime, it could still be a little while before you can buy loads of insect food in any neighbourhood supermarket in Europe. Uh, it looks like dried yellow mealworm could be getting the green light very, very soon. But the Food Safety Agency is still looking at crickets and grasshoppers. Uh, so watch this space. But a good week for edible insects, I think. Although not the insects themselves. They've had a very bad week. Sorry, bugs. This week, we reached a milestone with our Patreon supporters. We reached 200 supporters. So there are now over 200 of you supporting us. Thank you so much to all of you who donate a few pounds, dollars or euros each month to keep this podcast going. It really wouldn't happen without you. Who have we got to thank this week, Katie? Uh, we have to thank Amia Gupta, Clara Yaskova and Anthony Zahajewski, uh, who I think was the 200th person. I don't even know who the 200th person was. It doesn't matter. You're all amazing. You can join these over 200 people by heading to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast, which I heard on The Guilty Feminist, Deborah Francis White was referring to it as Patreon. Yeah. The Irish passport also call it Patreon. I don't know who's right. I kind of understand it in an Irish accent, but in an English accent, I'm not so sure. <laughs> anyway, it's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. Make your own decision how you'd like to pronounce it and do a forward slash to Europeans podcast. So how much do you know about the mafia? Not a lot, really. Yeah, me neither. I guess most of what I know is from like American films from the 80s and also French films like Unprofets as well. I haven't even seen any of those films. I think it's an area that I've avoided. I think I don't like 
violence and intimidation. <laughs> well, you're going to love this interview then because it's all about that. But um, yeah, when I read about this maxi trial that's opened in Italy, I realized that like everything I think I know about the mafia is kind of slightly divorced from reality. And I don't really know anything about how they operate. And that is why this trial is so interesting. More than 300 suspected members and accomplices of the Andrangheta are on trial. The Andrangheta are a very old and very powerful mafia group based in Calabria, which, as Dominic said, is in the toe of Italy's boot. The trial is happening in a converted call centre, just because the numbers of people involved are so, so big. And something I thought was really interesting about it is that loads of the defendants are white-collar workers. They are lawyers and accountants and local politicians. They're not necessarily the kind of people who who look like thugs, I guess. I just found this whole thing fascinating, but I wasn't really sure where to start with following this maxi trial and understanding how groups like the Ndrangheta actually work. So we thought we would ring up Federico Varese, criminology professor at Oxford University and the author of Mafia Life, a very enjoyable book about how mafia groups operate. He studied loads of different mafia groups around Europe and the world, so he seemed like the perfect person to talk to. So you've studied mafia organisations all over the world, the Yakuza in Japan, Russian organised crime. Do they all operate in largely the same way or are there things that make the Andrangheta a bit different? So obviously the question is very broad, but I think we can focus on traditional mafias, which are basically five. The Japanese Yakuza, the triads in Hong Kong, the Russian mafia the Sicilian Mafia and the Italian-American Mafia, to which we can add the Andrangheta. So all of these mafias have got quite similar structures. So they're all hierarchically organized. So there are families, so-called crime families. They all have rituals of entry and they all have a system of coordination among each family. And those systems of coordination are in effect the mafia. So there is no boss of the bosses in each of these mafias. There are independent groups, which in Italy are called families, and they coordinate across each other. They have similar rules of entry and of behavior, and they meet, of course, occasionally to discuss uh, matters of common interest. So 325 members of uh, Nadrangheta are being prosecuted in this trial, which I believe is only a tiny fraction of the people involved in the organization. Why did the prosecutors decide to go with this wing of the organization? So this trial that has just opened in Ramezia Terme is about a particular clan, which is called Mancuso clan. And it's in a particular province of Calabria called Vibo. And uh, it's a very violent clan. It's a clan which is quite rich and it's got uh, strong connections to the drugs trade. There have been a lot of unsolved murders connected to this particular group. So I think the decision of the prosecution was to bring together all the cases that had been unsolved done by this particular clan, or at least uh, assumed to be done by this particular clan, and bring them together in a single trial. As you said, there are hundreds of defendants, uh, hundreds of uh, witnesses will be called, of course, hundreds of uh, lawyers. (laughs) So it's a very large trial, but it's actually a trial just about one single group. Outside of Italy, the Cosa Nostra are probably the most famous mafia, I guess because of the movies. But the Andrangheta are probably more powerful from what I've read. How do they actually make their money? 
yes, you're right, the Sicilian mafia has got a global brand, probably thanks to the movies. But it's fair to say that the Sicilian mafia has been under huge pressure from prosecutors recently and from the police, mainly because they launched an attack against the Italian state and the state reacted. And so there have been a lot of investigations. Most of the bosses are in jail, except one major boss. Now, the Andrangheta, on the other hand, has never launched such a direct attack, um, killing dozens of journalists, prosecutors, and politicians, although they did kill some. So it was under the radar for a long time. Of course, now it's becoming much more in the radar, which is a good thing. Now, how do they make their money? Well, that's the key difference, again, between the Sicilian mafia today and the Andrangheta. The Andrangheta is making lots of money through drugs. So they managed to enter the international drug trade in a way that the Sicilian mafia has not been able to do, or at least it used to be into the international drug trade in the 80s, but then it has since moved out, has not been able to stay there. While the Andrangheta has uh, taken a really significant role in the import of uh, cocaine, especially from Latin America. For people who are living in Calabria, how noticeable is it day to day that they are living in the midst of one of the world's largest crime organizations? So let me say, first of all, Calabria is a fantastic place to visit. It's beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to. It's got amazing beaches, great food, of course, great lifestyle. So it's a beautiful place to live. Now, we should also note that the Andrangheta is not absolutely everywhere in the region. It's, it's concentrated only in some parts of the region, especially on the coast. So there are parts in the interior, in the very north of the region, which doesn't seem to have any mafia. Now, your question is very important because um, although, as I said, they are mainly involved in the drug trade, they also control local businesses. They try to control local politics, the health system. And so unfortunately, the essence of Andrangheta, which is also the essence of the other five mafias I mentioned before, is governance. They are institutions of governance in their territory. And in fact, this also explains why they are so prominent in the drug trade because they also have a degree of control over the harbor of Joyataro, which is where the containers arrive from Latin America. One of the things that's being looked at as part of this maxi trial is the murder of a man called Filippo Ganguitano in 2002. He was himself a hitman for the Andrangheta, and he was murdered by his cousin, allegedly on the crime boss's orders, because he was gay. I'm guessing it's a very kind of macho environment. How common is that kind of thing? Yes, it is a macho environment, and it certainly is not acceptable to be gay. And in, in many ways, it tells you about this organization. Of course, the other point to be made is that women are not formally inducted into the organization. So there is a ritual you have to go through, and women are excluded. Now, of course, women then have significant auxiliary roles, very significant but not as former members um, in the organization. So it is certainly a male fraternity, very traditional in many ways. And it's a fraternity that doesn't really process love in a sense. So genuine love, affection between people, men or women, is threatening to the organization. And so mafias are very scared, ultimately, of genuine loving bonds because those... Uh, supersede the bond between the member and the boss. 
It's not only these members of the fraternity who are being prosecuted on this trial, but also civil servants and even politicians. How high up into Italian politics does the mafia's influence reach? Most of the people on trial are not technically members. They are members of what I would call in-civil society or non-civil society. The point about mafias is that they can operate because they have ties to those outside the organization. So this trial in particular is very significant because involved in it are civil servants, um, people who used to work for the police or the carabinieri, and of course, uh, local politicians, including uh, there is, uh, of course, still innocent until proven guilty. There is also a former MP who was also a lawyer. So professionals, white collar. Mafias need that kind of help, that kind of enablers. They enable the organization to operate. These are localized people. So these are people who live in Calabria, And although, of course, one was in Parliament, um, they are from Calabria. In your book, you write about how this mafia boss in the post-Soviet region, a guy called Merab, you write about how he got invited to an Andrangheta wedding. And it sounded like they had a pretty cosy relationship, actually. How much do different mafia groups in Europe collaborate with each other? We shouldn't exaggerate. I think they're willing to cooperate and The Andrangheta, of course, sells its drugs to other groups, uh, which then sell them on to the street. So the Andrangheta is at the center of quite a high degree of international cooperation. Of course, it cooperates with the cartels in Colombia, and members of this particular clan, the Mancuso, were in Colombia to help out and to ensure the shipments. So mafia groups in general cooperate or fight with each other. There are strategic cooperations uh, as much as you would find in other parts of the business world. This maxi trial is probably going to last many months, probably years. What would a successful outcome look like for the chief prosecutor, Nicolo Garateri, at the end of it? You know, I believe in the rule of law. So for me, I wouldn't count success in terms of how many people are convicted. I think success is certainly Uh, measured by weakening the organization. And I think that's already happening. I mean, a great success of the trial, if I may say, is that a lot of people are testifying against the organization, members of the organization. So you have got 58 people who are testifying against the organization who had collaborated or were members of the organization, including the son of one of the key bosses of the Mancuso. It's called Emanuele. And he's testifying against his own father, and his own family. So that's already success. And he's not the only one. You see uh, children, you know, grown up uh, children of significant players in the organization, including top bosses, are testifying against their fathers. And uh, and that is a really major success. How much do you think criminologists like you could actually learn from this maxi trial about how this group operates? Well, a lot. We are really interested in the evidence that surfaces, also because We are interested in understanding the mechanism of operation of this organization, the the norms and the rules, as as you mentioned before, uh, of how the organization works, as opposed to exactly who did what. So there is a lot of material for us to pour over in the next uh, in the next few years. (laughs) I bet. Um, Like a lot of people who've read your book, I was quite surprised at the access that you have had to people that live and work in organized crime. They're surprisingly willing to talk to you and open up about their lives. 
Why do you think these people want to talk to you? And have you ever been scared of meeting them? I think we as criminologists or sociologists can learn a lot from judicial evidence. But my my particular inclination is that we also need to go to the places. We need to travel to the place and talk to people as much as we can. There is a writer whom I like very much, who unfortunately died recently, who said that desk is a very dangerous place from which to observe the world. So I am of the opinion that we must travel to place, try to meet these people, see the, the world they live in. And also these are people. So these are people like us and they have passions, they make mistakes. So in my work, I try not to glamorize them, even in a negative way. I think I try to highlight also the fact that some of their plans do not work. And when I uh, went to Russia to do that kind of work that you refer to, I was uh, just trying to understand what they thought uh, they were doing, what, basically what they see when they wake up in the morning and look at themselves in the mirror. To me, that is the most uh, interesting aspect of our work, uh, to go to places to, to learn how people live and try to understand what makes them tick. I watched a good video on the BBC website of a reporter climbing through a pizza oven in Calabria and finding this whole network of like secret bunkers behind it. Don't you think the pizza oven is a bit cliched? Yeah, pizzas are a bit cliched, I guess. And it, it made me a bit sad, actually, because the, the reporter pointed out the pizza oven had actually never been used for pizzas, which just seems like a waste. Oh, that's a terrible waste. Thank you to Federico for talking to us. You should all check out his book, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. Well, that takes us seamlessly into Isolation Inspiration, because I actually read quite a lot of Federico's book, Mafia Life, over the weekend. And it was super interesting, actually. What else have you been watching or reading or generally consuming this week? Well, I've been umming and ahhing about this recommendation because it's the second time in this segment's history that I've mentioned something that a family member was loosely involved in. Such nepotism on this show. I know. You can fire me and find a replacement for me by next week. Okay. The thing I wanted to recommend is a live stream of a theatrical adaptation of The End of Eddie, or Weg mit Eddie Bella Girl, which is this hugely successful autobiographical novel by the prodigious French writer Edouard Louis about his time growing up as a gay boy in the working class town of Halencourt in northern France. The book is amazing, so you should all go and read that if you haven't already. But you should also all tune in on Friday night this week to watch a live stream performance from Amsterdam. The show was adapted by the talented young Norwegian director Elina Arbo, along with my husband, who was her dramaturg. Here we go. <laughs> the reason why I mentioned it is because it was the hit of the theatre season last year. It won the Director's Award at the Theatre Festival. It topped almost all the Culture Critics' best theatre roundup lists. And it's kind of a pop performance as much as it is a play with the four male performers playing all the characters and singing and playing pieces of James Blake, Labyrinth and Tame Impala. Fun. It's the kind of theatre performance that manages to appeal to people who think they don't like theatre. 
And it's in Dutch, but it has English subtitles for the live stream. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, it's about 12 euros, I think, and worth every penny. And it was also recommended in The Guardian, which made me think, look, if The Guardian are recommending it, then why wouldn't I? Look, you justify it however you need to, Dominic. The fact is you are promoting your husband's show on this podcast and it is unacceptable. Uh, I'm joking. It sounds good. He doesn't get any extra money. He's already been paid. So, yeah, even if no one watched it. So I'm, I promise my family are not benefiting financially from this recommendation. Glad to hear it. What if your what's your family been producing this week culturally? My family haven't been producing anything culturally this week, sadly, but we have been consuming as a family a lot of Lupin on Netflix, which I think you've been watching as well, Dominic. It is so good. Yes. I love it too. I've only seen the first two episodes. Where are you in it at the moment? I'm saving up the last episode for a rainy day. But um, yeah, all of it so far has just been excellent. Uh, If you haven't heard of it, it is an incredibly fun French heist show on Netflix. Kind of a heist show? I don't want to spoil it for anyone. Uh, But it's inspired by the classic French tales of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Thief. It's set in Paris, so it's really fun for me as a Parisian to like see stuff that I go past all the time. And it stars Omar Sy as our charismatic hero. Um, It's just a really thrilling and quite silly show. Uh, And again, quite good escapism for right now, I think. If you've ever seen Sherlock from the BBC, it's kind of got that vibe. I think. Does everyone in France know who Arsène Lupin is? Yeah. So it's like a super, I I guess it is kind of the equivalent of Sherlock Holmes. You know, it's kind of like the capers, a sort of capery uh, character that everyone has just sort of grown up with. So it's a lot of fun. But it's a really kind of cool, modern twist on that story. And it's got little bits of social commentary about racism and ageism that I think have been quite nicely done. And it's made me want to go back and read those original Arsène Lupin novels. So I'm going to go and do that. For this week's happy ending, I'd like to talk about underwater seagrass. These are plants of which there are about 70 different species that at one point grew on land, but about 70 to 100 million years ago, recolonized the ocean. And they do a lot for our ecosystem. We've known for a long time that they absorb lots of CO2, they exude oxygen, they function as a nursery for lots of different types of fish. They are the foundation of coastal food webs, they prevent beach erosion, and they reduce the impact of storm surges. All very good things. But researchers from the University of Barcelona suggested that they do one other amazing thing for us that we didn't know about until now. They think they collect plastic for us, trapping it in natural bundles of fibre called Neptune balls, which eventually leave the marine environment through beaching. Isn't that so nice of them? It is really nice. And I'm just Googling these Neptune balls. They look a lot like falafels. I don't think you'd want to fry them and eat them. (laughs) Um, But I mean, it's amazing as if this seagrass wasn't doing enough for us already. It's apparently cleaning the ocean of all our trash. So if that's not happy news, I don't know what is. Good job, Neptune balls. Thank you, seagrass. If you have any recipe ideas for what to cook with edible insects, or any intel on what European government is going to get into trouble next, send us an email about it. We always love hearing from people. Hello at europeanspodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at europeanspod. 
Facebook by searching Europeans Podcast, Instagram, Europeans Podcast, or email. Oh, you just said email, didn't you? Get with the picture. We will be back next Wednesday for your usual weekly fix of Europeanness. Don't you worry. Uh, in the meantime, stay warm out there. It's very snowy. Wear sensible shoes. Ciao. Se vidimo. more.